Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. Joining me today on the podcast is Colin, who is the farm manager of Willersford Farm, a diversified farm that is the heart of the Willersford Agrihood in Northern Virginia. With his team, he raises 20 acres of certified organic produce, heritage pork, and pastured eggs for a CSA program, an on-site farm stand, and local wholesale partners. He has worked in agriculture for a decade as a farmer, educator, researcher, and builder, fine-tuning his production skills while also gaining perspective on the local and regional food movement and how it fits into larger agricultural landscape. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. Thanks, Michael. Good to be here. So talk to me a little bit about your farming operation. Sure. Yeah. So uh, as you said in the bio, Willisford Farm is is kind of a, an agri-hood concept. Uh, it is part of a housing development here in Northern Virginia called the Willisford uh, Community. And so it was established as sort of a, a, a partner uh partner organization to the development itself. Um, It's under the umbrella of what's called the Willisford Conservancy, which is uh, a not-for-profit organization that oversees uh, essentially 50% of the footprint of the Willisford community. And that's kind of defined by zoning zoning law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Willisford Farm itself sits on three three different non-contiguous farm sites kind of scattered throughout the Willisford housing development. So we've got 300 acres. Uh, we're producing on about 20 of those for produce and then, you know, probably another eight or 10 in cover crop. Uh, mm-hmm. And then our, our biggest farm, we're actually leasing out currently to a, a beef cattle producer to get the ground ready for the day when we bring uh, beef of our own on. So it's, it's, it's a farm first and foremost, it's part of a conservancy and all of that is part of a larger kind of community that uh, is, is sitting right out here, kind of outside of Washington, D.C. Okay, so how far outside of the actual D.C. are you? Uh, so it depends on traffic, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, in, in the heart of it, it's going to take you a little bit over an hour uh, wow. to get into the, the heart of D.C., but on a, on a clear day, you can get into the city in you know, 30, 35 minutes. So we're actually pretty pretty close as the crow flies, but uh, in sort of the DMV area, it's it it's hard to get anywhere fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're, you're it's it's it is incredibly close in just the, the major scheme of things, just because of how oh, expensive sure. real estate is in that area. Yeah, absolutely, and and a lot of a lot of the residents that live within the Willisford community work in the city, or mm-hmm. they currently they're doing remote work for a lot of the they used to work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and so it is, you know, it is kind of the, the ring around the city. Uh, this would be the, you know, the DC metropolitan suburbs. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of money in the area, uh, which definitely impacts land values, impacts market. Uh, all that kind of comes into play when you're trying to farm in, in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So how old is this development community? Uh, I think the, the community broke ground in 2009, I believe, uh, or late 2009. And uh, 
the Conservancy was a, a little bit of a later development. Uh, the farm got its start in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, but there, it was kind of a staggered beginning because they were still trying to figure out how exactly it all fit together. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the, the only agri-hood in sort of the capital region. There's certainly agri-hoods out there across the country and around the world. Um, but everyone has a little bit of a different approach. And I think they were trying to figure out how exactly to, to uh, create the structure of it when they were building out the, the concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about how the, the structure is. The sure. farm is a, a basically a, a part of the conservancy, which is a part of the, the HOA, or how does that, the farm financials actually sure. run? Yeah, so no, the, the conservancy is a separate entity entirely from, say, the HOA okay. or the sort of the developers that, that say, bankrolled the, the housing development. Uh, and that was done so pretty intentionally because they wanted to have the conservancy making decisions based on what was best for the mission of the conservancy as opposed to solely defined by the sort of the needs or the desires of the, the residents of the community as, mm -hmm. as a lot of HOA boards are, are kind of driven by those, those desires or demands. Yeah. Whereas the, the conservancy, so maybe I'll back up just a little bit and say the reason that the conservancy even exists apart from being, you know, part of the, the sort of the dream of the development team is actually the, the zoning uh, requirements for what's called the transition zone in Loudoun County uh, which is this band of uh, land that kind of separates the the more populated eastern half of the county from the more rural western half. The transitional zone, any new development has to have 50% of its footprint in quote-unquote open space. Mm. And so developments do all sorts of different things to you know abide by this policy. It could be put in a park. It could be put in a golf course. Honestly, most of them seem to just take the marginal ground and not build any houses and mm. leave it kind of vacant. Yeah. Um, Willisford decided to do something a little more creative, and that was create this sister organization, again, a separate entity uh, called the Willisford Conservancy. And they had to kind of jump through some legal uh, hoops in order to, to make sure that the um, – basically the county was okay with it being a separate entity. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the conservancy stands on its own two feet. Um, the farm being part of that has a, a couple different sources of revenue. Uh, first and foremost, we are a selling product to try mm -hmm. to basically have it operate as a, a normal farm would. Um, there are also uh, other aspects of the conservancy that are funded through other revenue streams. Uh, for example, a big part of what the Conservancy does is maintains uh, like a, a pretty extensive trail network, uh, as well as some uh, native habitat, habitat restoration projects, uh, reforestation projects, um, and all that is funded by resident assessments or fees that would be charged much like an HOA fee. Not nearly as expensive as an HOA fee, mm -hmm. but enough to support that work. Um, gotcha. And so it's, it's kind of a mixed model. Initially, there was a big influx of cash from the development team just to get the conservancy off the ground mm -hmm. before the sort of value was there to justify charging that, that resident assessment. But now uh, that there's been a clear separation between the development team and the conservancy, uh, we're, we're kind of adjusting or we have adjusted our funding model. Gotcha. Okay. So 
Colin, give us a little bit of an overview of your background in the farming community. Uh, sure. Um, so I kind of cut my teeth in my home state of Iowa. Um, had an interest in ag, but didn't really get started with it until I was partway through uh, college. Uh, I started on with uh, Mike and Katie of River Root Farm. They were kind of just getting started. And they, they really took me under their wing and taught me uh, you know, a tremendous amount uh -huh. uh, really quickly. It's amazing when you have a small team and people who are interested in investing in employees, how much you can learn in a short period of time. Um, and so I got pretty embedded with them and their systems and they've been trained by Elliot, uh, Elliot Coleman that is, uh, and done a bunch of work in some pretty neat projects around the Midwest and around the country. Uh, at the same time I was doing some work with seed savers exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, I, grew up in Decorah, which is where Seed Savers is. So if you're at all interested in agriculture, you're probably going to do some time there. Um, and so got a little bit of background in, you know, open pollinated seed production and heirloom varieties and, and sort of the, the back end of the, the seed world, which was mm -hmm. pretty neat. Uh, and I worked both as a hort tech for them as well as, um, you know, a grower for them and for other seed companies as well. So there was kind of a, a, a few different approaches that we took. Um, also through Mike, I got involved with Forces and Tools, which I know you ha have a connection mm -hmm. to as well. Um, got linked up with them and did a, did a few years, probably four-ish years working with them. In the, and that was uh, primarily focused on season extension technologies. So we would do uh, certainly design and sale of high tunnels, greenhouses, uh, sort of the supporting systems and technologies. Uh, but what I really took away from it was before I kind of started doing a little bit more of the, like, um, I guess back end work is I spent a lot of time on the road visiting farms and building, uh, uh -huh. building for farms, which, uh, honestly was one of the best, I guess the, the, the most diverse perspective I could have gotten because I was on a new farm with each job seeing how they did things, seeing what kind of systems they were employing, uh, mm -hmm. picking the farmer's brain. And so it was a pretty, pretty great way to learn. And the really cool thing about the kind of greenhouses for season tool cells is they are, they're usually a little bit more involved. They're not just your sure. small caterpillar tunnels so that you're on a farm that is putting up those kind of tunnels, which means they're usually a pretty advanced farm. For sure. Well, and Maybe you're just being politically correct when you say they're a little more complex, but they're certainly more expensive. Yes. And in order to, <laughs> in order to afford one of those, you typically have to be on pretty solid financial footing. Yeah. And so I, I agree with you in that the, the people that I was working with uh, or working for, however you want to put it, they were great people to learn from. Mm -hmm. um, and it was neat to see sort of everything from people who are just getting started and wanted mm -hmm. to kind of really make a, a big go of it. Also, uh, you know, people who are expanding uh, and people who are shifting focus, say from field production to season extension as climates kind of mm -hmm. shift or as markets change. So it was, yeah, all around, it was a great, great, uh, great position, great perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And after that, I ended up shifting up uh, further North. Uh, I took a job uh, with Michigan State University. I got hired on to start and manage a uh, like a farm incubator uh, an education farm 
uh, up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So that, that was pretty neat because basically the, the university had secured a little bit of grant funding to get it started. Uh, and they had sort of a, a rough draft or a, an outline mm-hmm. of what they wanted to do, but they basically handed me the keys and said, okay, now go, go build this thing. Um, which is was a, a, a unique opportunity to say the least. So, uh, spent five years, uh, making that, uh, basically taking an old dairy farm and making it into a, uh, incubator farm, production farm, research operation, um, looking at Northern climate production, looking at organic production, um, small grain production, all sorts of stuff in, in a really pretty challenging climate up on the shores of Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually got sick of the cold. Uh, actually, that's <laughs> not true. I, I, I love the cold, but I wanted to try a different climate, different scale. So I ended up taking this job here in Virginia about mm-hmm. two years ago uh, and have been kind of tweaking the operation. It was a little bit more mature when I came on. Uh, it was uh, pretty, it had some some kinks to work out. And I looked at it as sort of a challenge of taking a, a an established uh, operation and trying to troubleshoot, uh, mm-hmm. problem solve, see the weak areas and try to flesh them out a little bit better. Yeah. And that's kind of what, what we've been working on. Yeah. And I've, I've looked at your Instagram and it looks like you've also done a lot of scaling up too, and just kind of like improving the systems dramatically. That's, you know, that's the goal. Um, we've got land and we certainly have market. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of kind of making those match at this point. Um, we do have some pretty excellent resources in terms of sort of the, the tool arsenal that we work with. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've made some strategic investments to try to support the, the scaling that we are going through currently. Mm-hmm. So uh, what if, let's say in five years, what scale would you like to be on with that farm? Uh, it's, that's a tough question because there's the part of me that just wants to grow more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also the part of me that needs to listen to what the farms themselves are telling me. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, we've got three separate farms, each with its own personality and each with its own soil type and challenges and advantages and, and the like. And so um, the, to give you a, an example, we have one main farm that has kind of two separate ranges here. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where we've got our packing facility. That's where we've got our greenhouses and high tunnels, our offices, our main, you know, cold storage, et cetera. Uh, and that, that soil has been worked heavily. Uh, it used to be a horse farm. Uh, the, my predecessor did a good job of keeping this ground pretty, um, pretty, pretty well managed. We got some, some excessive weed pressure, but what organic farm doesn't. <laughs> um, but the, you contrast that to one of our other farms, which uh, had been, row cropped, mm-hmm. but prior to that had been a sod farm. Ooh. And so basically they stripped off all the good stuff and left the clay subsoil. Mm. And so that's one that, you know, before we can have full production on it, we need to do some, some rehab work. Yeah. Um, so that's a really long winded answer. We do have the ability to scale further. If we broke into the third farm, which logistically would be a bit challenging because it's a little farther afield. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could do, I don't know, 40 to 60 acres. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to do that much. I think yeah. the sweet spot for us would probably be produce well on 20 to 25 and then have the balance in, in cover crop uh, to try to have better rotations. Yeah. 
Yeah, the more rotation you can give yourself, the better overall is just going to happen. Absolutely. So, okay, so let's talk about uh, systems. You talked, well, you talked a little bit about the soil. So you've got some clay on the main farm. What's the soil type there? Uh, it's, it's still pretty heavy. It's got a little bit higher silt content, um, but it's definitely been nurtured a bit more. Okay. Um, Virginia, Virginia clay is a real thing. Uh, it tends to be pretty heavy, pretty wet, mm-hmm. um, which contrasts nicely to the sandy loam that I was farming on previously. Yes. Um, but, uh, it certainly has it, it, its advantages, but this is definitely a slightly lighter texture, certainly a higher organic matter content, um, and a little bit easier to work than the other farm does. Gotcha. Okay. So you've got more of a clay soil. Let's talk about like what the equipment arsenal looks like. Um, you've got some bigger tractors, bigger four wheel drive tractors. I think the new Hollands. We've got one new Holland that, uh, it's a T fifty fifty. I think it's hovering around a hundred, mm-hmm. 105 horse. Uh, we've got a, uh, another four wheel drive tractor. It's a Kubota seventy forty, mm-hmm. which, uh, is a slightly smaller rig, but, uh, you know, still a pretty powerful tractor. Uh, we also have an antique, a hydro, an international hydro 86, uh, which mm-hmm. is, uh, it's, um, it's a pretty nice, nice tractor. It's anytime you work with antique equipment, you know, it's, you mm-hmm. have problems. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, you ran some, you ran some farmals or internationals at your place. <laughs> yes. You? Yes. Yeah. So you gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad there. But, um, and then we also have kind of a smattering of, of smaller equipment. We've got a, an electric Alice G that we use for cultivation. Uh, I've got a case 265 that we use for cultivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a goofy, it's a Massey 1035, um, which is, you know, probably a 25 horsepower two wheel drive little thing that uh, when I first saw it, I didn't think it'd be useful for much, but it turns okay. out that it's a, a great rig for pulling a cedar or, uh, you know, a plastic lift or plastic winder, uh-huh. cone spreader. So it actually has found a, a, a home here at the farm. So okay. we, we got a lot of, lot of equipment, a lot of rig. Yeah. Uh, and sure. then I also noticed some of the stuff that you've done. Um, I mean, you're laying beautiful plastic. Is that with a, a rain flow uh, layer? Yeah, that's the, uh, shoot, what's the model number? 2600 or something like that. Yeah, um, the, bigger, the biggest one. Yeah, and that's uh, that that thing's outfitted with the fertilizer hopper and the row track system and all that. Um, yeah, and it it works pretty well. There there is also uh, in the in the hedgerow currently a mechanical transplanter that I'm looking to offload just because that rain flow does a, such a good job with it. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, because I've actually in the last couple of years when we, for a brief smattering, did a little bit of research into the hemp world to see if we wanted to kind of like start education that sure. direction. Um, we were actually looking at what all the different equipment out there and just seeing the wide variety of different oh, yeah. transplanters and, uh, and uh, you know, cultivators and uh, plastic layers that they're using. So, um, yeah, it's interesting the, the different ones out there, but it keeps coming back to the rainflow is just a fabulous machine. It is. It's heavy enough that it can move soil. Uh, it's got enough precision that if you see that something's not laying right, uh, uh-huh. there's, you know, it, it's a blessing and a curse in that there's a thousand ways to, to tweak it. Uh-huh. Um, so if something's out of whack, sometimes it takes a while to actually track down what's going on. Uh-huh. But you can also manipulate so many different aspects of the machine to get the desired result that you want. And once it's dialed in, 
assuming yeah. your soil texture doesn't change too much, your moisture is not all over the map. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a great machine. Mm -hmm. And then are you doing, um, hundred percent ground cloth between, or do you have mixed systems on that? Uh, we do mix. So a uh, couple things are just cultivated. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've got a few different tools that we use for that. Um, the landscape fabric has been a nice thing, uh, just because it's, I mean, it's foolproof. Really. Mm -hmm. It's once and um, done. Yeah. And so we use that on some of our, our uh, longer season stuff, like our field tomatoes or, um, onions, things that are just, we don't really want to get in more than we have to. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also, I've also played around with, um, I got an old manure spreader, an old night manure spreader and, uh, have a free source of leaves from a nearby oh, nice. uh, city and they, yep. they'll haul them to the farm in a tractor trailer and dump them for me. Um, and so we played a, a little bit with just laying the plastic and then spreading leaves over it. Okay. And as I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I want to play around with it a little bit more. Uh, you got to get enough coverage in order to get weed suppression, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, you know, it's a nice thing to be one and done and throw a bunch of organic matter into the soil. Yeah. Um, and it's a free input. So, um, so have you split the manure spreader so that it's only putting in the, between the plastic or is it laying straight across? It's, it's laying wide at this point, just, you know, hitting the, the surface as well. If it's something that we need to, uh, push broom is a magical yep. tool. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, if it doesn't really matter, you can plant through it. Yeah. Um, so it's, I've got a video of a farmer that built a splitter on the back of his. So I'll have to send oh, yeah? it your way. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it was pretty that. simple and it made such a difference for him. So, you know, the, the, the other thing that we played around with, and it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more of a finesse tool, I guess, is we do have a Teagle bale shredder mm -hmm. uh, with the strawberry shoots on there. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that I find is straw is so hard to come by around here. Yes. Um, and you know, clean hay. Yeah. Because, uh, all that's getting eaten up by the landscaping mm -hmm. uh, companies around here. And so mm -hmm. to get a, even a small square bale, we're paying like eight bucks for a small oh, square gosh. bale of yeah. around here, if you can find it. So yeah. getting, getting round bales is, uh, really quite difficult. So, I mean, when we were farming, we were around about 50 acres of uh, tillable, and we actually were able to devote 15 or 20 acres every year to straw production. So is that something that you could do with your cover crop land? That's, I have considered it for sure. Um, and did you just have a, someone contract harvest or something, or would you end yeah. up doing with it? Yeah, yeah, it's contract, but I mean, it, it does get to be a little bit of a pain. And if you don't have your own equipment, because yeah. you're never as high a priority as their hay crop. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that that would be a possibility on, especially on one of our farms, that's a little farther flung. Um, mm -hmm. Cause it's, you know, it's decent ground for say small grains or something along those lines, but maybe not prime vegetable ground. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, I might pick your brain about that at some point too. Mm -hmm. All right. So then you've got the, you've got a mechanical transplanter, I think, and you've also got a water wheel. Yeah, we've got the land and carousel mm -hmm. uh, planter and we've got the rain flow. I don't remember 1500 or something like that. Yep. 1600 uh, water wheel. Now, are, is one suited for certain crops more than the other? Um, 
really, I, I, when I can, when the soil conditions are uh, good, I like using the carousel whenever I can uh, mm -hmm. because it's fast. Mm -hmm. And just the, the body position of the planters, of the people sitting on there is so much more pleasant. Uh, mm -hmm. Fatigue is less of an issue because you're not leaning off to the side. You're just, mm -hmm. you're sitting there and looking down. Uh, it is a finicky machine um, and soil till texture has to be pretty spot on for it to lay nicely. Mm. Uh, we're also not set up at currently to, to run water in the furrow as you're making it. So if mm -hmm. we need to juice stuff up as we plant, we'll use the, the, the water wheel, but um, they both have their place. Obviously we're using the water wheel on anything that we're doing plastic uh, mm -hmm. or on plastic, but uh, it does find its place in bare ground every once in a while too. Mm -hmm. What's your irrigation setup? Uh, got a couple things. We actually have a pretty nice in-ground system for at least getting water to where it needs to be. Um, okay. We are blessed with a, uh, I'd have to look up what the, the gallons per minute on it is for our, our main well here, but we actually have to throttle it back quite a bit. It's a big um, well, you're saying. <laughs> it's a giant well. It's oversized because we also share it with, we have a, a mutual or reciprocal use agreement with the HOA. Mm -hmm. So uh, we maintain the well and they use it for their streetscape irrigation, which oh, is wow. pretty slick. Yep. Uh, so it does have to be oversized. Um, but we run water underground to uh, risers and then we hook up either uh, solid set PVC stuff. Uh, I've actually been running more irrigation reels. Uh, mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. a, I got a couple Kifco guns that uh, I picked up uh, for for moving around the farm and that it works for most things, not for everything, but I love the versatility of it. And I love mm -hmm. that you don't have to pick up irrigation to cultivate. Yes. Um, but anything on plastic is on drip played around with a little subsurface drip, but I'm still kind of working out the kinks in that for bare ground stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only downside of the Kifco guns is that if you're trying to put on just a little bit of water to let's say germinate carrots, it yeah. really is a pain. It's uh yeah. Yeah, they they have some good adjustment, but uh, with any of those big guns too, I've got two different sizes, and especially the bigger one, the droplet size is so big. Mm -hmm. And with our heavy soils, that can that can be problematic. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's usually the case for germinating, say carrots or you know finer seeded stuff, beets, parsnips. I'll put on a an overhead kit. Mm -hmm. Once those are up and once they're cultivated, then we'll pull that out and uh, move on to the gun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So I saw a video of a fabric winder or row cover winder. Talk mm. to me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was, so, um, my system manager, John, uh, he, sh he shares, I think my hatred of row cover, uh, <laughs> doesn't everybody. I, yeah. And, uh, he, he had seen a, I don't know if it was a, someone had put up a post about a, just a manual winder. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we ended up building one, uh, just, you know, welded some angle iron, um, put it onto one of our harvest wagons. Uh, and it's, it's manual at this point, you know, I have dreams of making it hydraulic and, mm -hmm. and all that, but this is, we'll call this version 2.0. Uh, there's probably several more to come, but basically what it is is we use a two inch PVC on a one and a half inch, uh, galvanized pipe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that way it's stiff enough to hold the weight of the either landscape fabric or row cover or whatever as it's winding. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can pull those PVC uh, sleeves off, hang mm -hmm. them so that they're up off the ground out of the way of mice and nice mm -hmm. and tidy. 
and then uh, pull them out, put it back on the winder and, and deploy them uh, pretty easily. How much, how many foot feet of row cover can you put on a real, a, I guess you call it a sleeve or a reel? Yeah. Uh, the row cover, it kind of depends on the width of it. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll usually do, uh, oh, what's the, I think they're 50 some odd feet by 200 some odd feet are our normal pieces. Okay. Wow. And we can fit uh, two of those onto one of them. And then for the landscape fabric, we can fit, we're doing four foot wide stuff by 200 foot. Mm -hmm. And I think we did four, I think we could probably get away with six of those lengths rolled up on there, just one on top of the other. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a decent amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any problem with having to try to clean the, 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 the ground cloth before you put it on? Uh, it, it hasn't been an issue. Uh, as we wind it up, we staple stuff down rather than sandbag. Okay. Uh, I've mowed too many sandbags at this point. Um, uh, so we're rolling it up slow enough that, uh, we're pulling staples out. If there are any weeds that have found their way through, we'll pull them at that point. Mm-hmm. I've thought about mounting like a, you know, push broom head or something, yeah. some other roller to kind of sweep it off as it comes through. Yeah. Um, at this point, it, it hasn't been a problem, so I haven't uh, added that, but we'll see. Yeah, I was thinking about like two almost like mini street rollers operating at mm. like going, rotating away from each other as the road cover or the ground cloth came in and it would just like sweep yep. it off. But yeah, it's, I, I think once we pull, I think it's going to be more of an issue once we pull our, say our field tomatoes, because you get mm-hmm. all the tomatoes that you drop, right? Oh gosh, yeah. And they rot away and everything. And uh so we'll, we'll figure out a way to probably clean that and then hopefully see if there's any way of, I don't know if you can truly sanitize that stuff, but at least get a little closer. So I've got a video on that too. Uh, yeah. Email me about that one. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a, yeah. it's, it's a cheap version, but I think it will work quite well for you. All yeah. right. So one more, th- a couple more questions about the equipment side, uh, harvesting with a conveyor. Um, obviously I've seen that done before, but how are you liking that on your scale? That's great. I, uh, so that was a new investment. Um, so we just got, it's the Nolts, uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's 28 feet long, maybe spans four beds. Uh, so we do eight bed blocks. And so it's half a, half a block at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that, that was a, a, a big improvement. Uh, you know, when we're doing, you know, half acre of tomatoes at a time, uh, to lug, crates or, you know, harvest totes through the field or zucchini or any of the things that, you know, we push a lot of in our, our CSA. Um, it's, it's hugely important. So, um, you know, we, we kind of invested in it because we picked up a couple of bigger wholesale accounts, uh, looking at sort of specific higher volume crops that worked well with the belt mm. or the harvest conveyor. Uh, but I tell you what, we use it for, way more than I expected to. And I'd like to continue setting up fields so that we can use it for basically anything that makes sense to, to drive the tractor through. Now, that takes a lot of field setup. I think you just said something there that I want to talk about a little bit is mm. you have to think about your hedgerows, you think about turning, you have to think about your harvest containers, setting up your wagons. Yeah. Yeah. And actually one of the things that kind of, uh, I didn't think about, luckily my, one of my, uh, again, my assistant manager, he had worked on new morning farm up uh-huh. in Pennsylvania and they're, yes. you know, they're doing pretty decent acreage. 
Yeah. And so they were running a couple belts and, uh, they're also though, you know, they're, uh, they do wholesale or maybe they do wholesale, but I think they're mostly a farmer's market operation. Well, they, but they also have the co-op. Don't they have the oh, yeah. Tusca, Tusca Well, that actually, that actually has closed, uh, oh, okay. for the time being. Uh, it sounds like it may reopen, but that is, yeah, that has taken a, a break for the time being, but I, yeah, they, they had gone through that, uh, Tusker organic. But the reason I bring this up is because, uh, when you're doing sort of direct to consumer stuff, even if you're doing 20 acres or 40 acres or whatever else, there's still those stupid little crops that you're only doing like a partial field of. Yeah. And given that we do mainly CSA, uh, we still have you know, way too, too yeah. many varieties of tomatoes or too many, you know, small pockets of fennel or, yes. uh, I, you know, whatever else. And so uh, what I found is most critical is instead of doing, say, a bed of a given tomato variety, uh, a 200 foot bed, you do four 50 foot blocks or four 50 foot sections mm -hmm. Yep. beds together so that all that's getting thrown under the belt packed into the same crates and then you're moving on to the next variety Ooh, after that that's brilliant so it makes a little bit more effort when you're setting the field for transplants but it makes harvest just 100 percent easier for sure and and in some instances it doesn't really matter for example if you're doing mixed tomatoes for a csa it may not yeah it may not really matter but if you're doing say wholesale uh, zucchini and summer squash and you're packing into cases in the field, you don't want people to be juggling three different varieties or three different you know, types yeah. of squash. And so it, it definitely makes a, a difference for sure. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. All right, another thing I saw was you were playing around with a crimp, a cover crop crimping and then strip tillage. Mm. Talk to us yeah. a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so that's still a, very much a work in progress and I'm learning a lot about it. Um, but we've got, uh, I think it's a J and D roller crimper that mm -hmm. can be used either uh, as a sort of mounted on the, the loader of one of our tractors or a three point uh, really slick design. Um, and then we do have a, a Stoltzfus Reaper uh, zone builder, which basically is, just, uh, you know, it's a series of uh, trash cleaners and then a, a subsoiler and then a, you know, filling disc, notch discs, and then a, a crumbler on the back so you get a about a nine to ten inch section of worked soil in your uh roller crimped okay uh, uh crop uh so we're trying trying it out with a few different cover crop varieties a few different production systems did on winter squash this year i think it it has potential for things that uh that have less cultivation needs yeah um things that vine out and cover the ground well just because uh, I don't know the, the thing we struggle with most is getting good termination of the cover crop. Yeah. And I've talked to a few people about, you know, alternative tools that you can use in, in concert with the roller crimper, like a, you know, dragging a no-till drill behind it to get a little slicing action or, yeah. You know, but it is, it, it really is crop dependent. Uh, certainly is stage of uh, termination dependent. Um, and, uh, also, the, the thing that is kicking my butt with the winter squash this year is um, your fields have to be super flat. Um, you know, the, the final step before you seed your cover crop of getting like a nice level seed bed is, yeah. is really critical because if you have bumps and lumps in your field, having an eight foot roller crimper kicking oh. up on one side, it, it doesn't 
terminate yeah. evenly. Mm-hmm. So um, I wish I had done a better job with field prep on that particular field. But, uh, you know, these are things you learn with yeah. the time. So that brings you back to having to uh, invest in larger scale, just seating and, and you know, uh, like a roller. Um, I was almost wondering if you can contract that out to some of the farmers with a big equipment. Yeah, it's possible. We got a lot of crop growers around here. I mean, I've got a, a, a pretty nice uh, drill that I'll mm-hmm. use, but um, it does create ridges. Yeah. Um, and typically with the roller crimper, you want to seed perpendicular to the direction you're roller crimping. Oh, yep. um, and so if you're consistent and you do a good job with it, then usually your roller crimper kind of nestles into those ridges pretty yes. nicely. Um, but you know, there are a million factors at play. So it's just a matter of making it all work together. Yeah. Yeah. Or you need a different type of roller crimper that has like more like two foot sections and all of them independent, but that brings the cost drastically higher. Yeah, for sure. It is. I mean, I love the idea of it though. Mm -hmm. And I I plan to play around with it more and more because I think the, the, the less soil disturbance we can do, especially on some of the fragile soils that we're working with, um, the, the better. And anytime we can get organic matter down on some of these soils, the, you know, that's a, a great thing. Yeah. Um, what I find though in the mid Atlantic climate too. Uh, so I did some, some very small trials of, um, this kind of thing up in Michigan, but the, the tricky thing there is in colder climates, the, anytime you have soil covered, your warming is going to be delayed. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so that's where the strip tillage comes into play. Cause you're getting a band of warm soil, but here we don't have any issues with soil warming sufficiently it's more of a very rapid rate of decomposition of any of that cover crop residue Uh um, and having a flush of weeds you know now uh once that residue is kind of broken down in the hot humid climate we have uh and there's still plenty of you know sun and warmth and moisture to to kick those weeds into high gear so Uh it's it's a matter of like properly preparing a field years in advance um, and then tooling up appropriately so that you can manage the sort of the, the factors that are manageable, mm-hmm. which I, I'm still like, I'm a, I'm a total novice when it comes to no-till zone till all that stuff, but I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. And, and that was the thing, like in New York, we were just so cold. It didn't make sense. But yeah. now that we're here in Ohio, even though we're probably at a small enough scale that it probably won't be practical, I'm still very interested in seeing what I can do. So. Yeah, I mean, it's got a lot of merit. And one of the things I'm excited about too um, is even if you're following, if, well, not following, if you're doing multiple uh, rounds of various cover crops, um, you know, you can roller crimp and then I got a no-till drill so I can drive right into that uh-huh. and keep that ground covered, never have to turn it, keep the weed spread, you know, the weed suppressed and establish an, another round of cover crop, even if I'm not putting it onto a cash crop. Yeah. Um, so we can just pump the organic matter into that, into that soil uh, over the course of a year. And how big is your, your uh, no-till drill? Uh, it's a 10 foot wide. Yeah. Okay. So you can get into those, you know, some of those older ones, no-till drills for what, like five or 8,000? Yeah. And this one, this was a, a, this was a purchase from the uh, previous manager or by the previous manager. And he wanted to play around with some pretty interesting uh, ideas. And he got, it's called an interseeder. Um, it's developed, I think by some folks at Penn state, but the idea is it's got the spacing on it 
the, the original design was so that people could drill cover crop into standing corn okay. um, or beans or yeah, usually corn uh, just because of the sort of growth rate and whatnot. But um, it's, it's designed to sit between standing rows. And so uh, he wanted to go this route to see if there was any way that we could do that with some of the uh, cash crops, the vegetable yes. crops that we're growing, yep. Um, yep. which I think, I think there's merit. You have to drive straight. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't we don't have you know, GPS or anything, so um, you know it, it's a little bit more challenging. But uh, the spacing is such that we could theoretically play around with that if the timing was right. Have you talked to Skip Paul because he did a presentation at New England Vegetable Growers last year on that? You know, I think I might have come across the the presentation, but I have not given him a call to to pick his brain anymore. Um, yeah, is, is he actually because he's actually running an interseeder, right? I, for, I believe so. I forget the exact machine. I remember being in there for part of it and then getting pulled out for something, but it was a fascinating sure. um, and it was something I definitely wanted to, especially if you're doing large-scale brassicas, it just makes so yeah. much sense. Yeah. And that's anytime we've done that, we've been just broadcasting, say a clover or something, but if we could get, if we could get it drilled uh, yeah. and have like really solid establishment, I see that being a huge asset um, yeah. for that, for that brassica uh, block, especially. Fava beans, I think, would be a fun one to play with. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the protein side. Obviously, you know, we focus more on the vegetable side here because that's my uh, – and I, I geek out on that. But sure. talk to us about the – I know you do pastured pork and some other things. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fitting that we talk about vegetables more because that's – the bulk of what we do is produce. Um, we do have uh, pastured pork and we do pastured eggs. Um, it's not, neither is a huge operation. So for our eggs, we peaked out at around 650 birds. Okay. Um, right now we're, we, we, it's really poor timing, but we uh, scaled it back to around 350 uh, and saw a huge demand increase because mm -hmm. of COVID yeah. and couldn't, couldn't get any more birds in. So we have a pretty small flock at this point, but um, that's uh, just out in kind of mobile coops, like Conestoga wagon style um, in some of the more marginal ground around the farm here. Okay. Um, working on trying to get our rotations tightened up so that we could actually run birds at the end of the season on ground that won't be, uh, won't be uh, cropped yep. um, or potentially a late cover crop um, just to clean them up and uh, to do their thing, of course. But uh, they're great. You know, there's a huge demand for eggs here and uh, we love, love raising them. Um, the, the pork side of things, we raise about 20 pigs a year. Uh, we got three we're holding back uh, from this last batch. We're going to try our first attempt at, at breeding. Uh, it's a Tamalitsa, which is a, a mix of Tamworth and Mangalitsa. We got them from a local farm here that okay. has been working pretty hard to kind of refine the genetics over the last you know, decade or so. Um, and it's, it's a great pig. You know, the Tamworth is certainly great eating quality. It's a, a leaner pig. It's more like what people are used to nowadays, but has some of that heritage flavor. Yeah. Um, great bacon, you know, uh, still great, you know, shoulder, but, uh, a little leaner for sure. And so that's where the Mangalitsa comes in. It certainly packs on a lot more fat. Yeah. Um, which equates to a lot more flavor. Uh, it is what we've noticed though, is if you have too heavy of a pig or too high fat content, there's a lot of 
sort of customer education that has to go into that. Yeah. You go into the, the grocery store now and pick up pork chop and it's got virtually no fat on it. Whereas with something that comes off of one of our pigs, you could have like a two inch slice of fat on the top of it. And yeah, uh, people, people aren't necessarily used to that. Yeah. But those are, you know, those are all run in the, in the woods here. Um, we kind of rotate them around again on some ground that's marginal and, um, you know, try to keep them in areas where they'll, they'll kind of clean up the understory and then get them off it so that they, uh, you know, can, can kind of keep, keep invasives and keep other things at bay. It's amazing how fast stuff grows in this climate from a, like a weed or invasive species perspective. Mm-hmm. So honestly, they, they do some work for us, which is great. So with the chickens, do you feel like you're at a scale with those, even at 650 birds to actually be a profitable enterprise? We make money off our eggs. Uh, okay. I can believe it. Um, we have a pretty low labor uh, requirement for them. We've mechanized their washing to a degree. It's just a little bench top thing. Uh, not a, not a batch washer, but a continuous feed. So there is, uh-huh. you know, one person does it, but it, it does require a person to, to manage that. Um, and then we just use all rollout nest boxes. So collecting eggs is super easy. Um, you know, they're, they're not organic. They're fed a non GMO feed. If we went organic, I think we'd have to look a little closer at our, our pricing. Yeah. Um, but we're getting, you know, we're getting six bucks a dozen here, uh, and can never hold on to them. Uh, and, and we can, we can make money at that price point. Okay. That's, that's great. And absolutely the aspect is the labor is the biggest aspect. So if you can reduce that, then you can make, you can make money eggs on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cartons are cheap. Feeds not too expensive. Uh, pullets or chicks are pretty cheap. It's, it really is how much do you put into it on a daily basis and our chicken chores on a given day max out at like, unless we're washing eggs, uh, 30 minutes. That's all it takes. Gotcha. And do you have any predator problems? Oh God, Michael, do we have predator problems? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it's a good time to ask that. I actually just lost about 50 birds in one night. Um, Whoa. And that was that was our biggest hit. Um, we, we sometimes have hawks that pick them off, um, but we, we basically make sure that the, the paddock that they're in is got overhead protection. Okay. Um, but, but this is a story on how all things are connected, right? How if you, if you look at farming with blinders on, you're going to run into problems. Mm. And, and what happened was um, turns out that some of our birds have decided to roost outside their coop. Okay. We have, we have solar doors, so everything closes up at night. We'll do a late afternoon check and then assume that everything's good for the day. We have perimeter fencing, you know, uh, poultry netting that's electrified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we thought we were in good shape. Turns out that they started roosting outside um, and a fox or raccoon or I don't know which found its way in uh, and did some damage. And so I was looking around at the, the fence trying to figure out what the issue was. Didn't find anything obvious. Found maybe a couple weak spots to tighten that up. Uh, but the big thing I noticed was they're just so um, vulnerable if they're not in their coop locked up at night. Yeah. Said, why, why are these birds not going in at night? And so through further investigation, what I discovered is, oh, we've got a mite problem. Uh, the birds uh. are not wanting to go into their coop because it's infested with mites and it's making them really un, you know, unhappy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so while it looks like, oh, we just had a fox get into the 
pasture and tear up a bunch of chickens, it was actually not really the problem. It was just uh-huh. a symptom of the problem, which was, you know, we have chickens that don't want to go in their coops because there's yeah. an underlying pest problem. Uh-huh. So that's a, a very long-winded way of saying, yes, we have predator pressure. <laughs> but I think, uh, Colin, you brought up something that's so important is the, the aspect of asking why, of just like, why are these not wanting to go in, you know, and, and getting to that root cause, which is something that, you know, if you'd been able to see that beforehand, you could have saved yourself. I mean, a pullet is worth, what, $12, $15 by the time it's egg producing? Yeah. Um, so that was a $600 um, six to $800, you know, uh, loss. Well, and certainly lost revenue as a, as yeah. a result of it too. So. Yeah. Cause you learn now you cannot buy pullets anywhere. So, no. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, so what are you doing to, to manage the mites? Are you just bringing in like a D D earth yeah. or. Yeah. We're doing DE, uh, diatomaceous earth. Um, also doing some just kind of a, similar to what you do for uh, crop with aphids uh, with insecticidal soap. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just trying to suffocate them. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have enough birds that we can't treat individual birds uh, yeah. effectively. And so we're treating their living quarters. And then also, you know, if this doesn't work, I've read up on some like herbal extracts and stuff that uh, we might play around with um, and supplement their feed with with some of that and, and do sprays. But I'm, I'm hoping the, the DE is sufficient um, and a couple of treatments with the, the insecticidal soap um, will we'll hopefully mm-hmm. take care of the problem. Mm-hmm. Colin, talk to us about your schedule. So, you know, as a farmer, there's always endless tasks to be done. How do you make sure you're focusing on what's the most vital every day? Yeah, I mean, there's some things that are set in stone, like we know our distribution days and our, you know, delivery days for CSA or wholesale. Um, and that defines sort of our our harvest schedule. Um, we're not at a scale where we're harvesting every day. Uh, we mm-hmm. usually do one to three or two or three days of, of harvest a week and then some maintenance harvest here or there. But, um, you know, so those are those are set. And then the rest of it kind of works around it. I use uh, for sort of task management and out laying out a week. Uh, I use Trello, which is mm-hmm. just basically an online uh, uh, task management board. Uh, and my crew's gotten really good about it, uh, both in terms of looking to it for guidance, but also to uh, contribute and make sure that I know if there are things that need to be communicated to me, that's a good way of doing it. So we'll use that for, you know, we have daily, they're called boards um, or lists rather. Uh, and each has individual cards. And so any user can get on there and check off the item on the checklist, or they can edit, make them make comments. They can drag it to the next day because we have one for each day. And that allows us a really fluid sort of uh, transparent way of, of both managing, but also delegating tasks. Mm. Uh, so that certainly helps. Um, we use a couple other systems too for managing the, you know, the amount of information that that we got to keep in each of our heads as we farm uh, for crop planning and uh, scheduling. I use tend, yep. which is an online platform that I've uh, been using for, I don't know, probably honestly, I think I was a beta tester. So I've been using it for a lot of years now uh, and really uh, it's gotten so much better over time and I really love it. Um, and that's, it's basically like a, you know, an online, again, anyone on the crew can access it. They can pull up a little uh, info card on, 
where does the imperial broccoli from this seeding get planted? What's the spacing? Uh, you know, when was it sown? It's great for crew directives, but it's also great for organic certification. Yeah. So we do all of our um, field activity logging in there. Um, those are kind of the two big tools that I use to manage tasks. But, uh, you know, radios are huge. Uh, walkie talkies, that is, to communicate with the staff. Uh, have a, t you know, touch in or uh, check in at the beginning of the day. Make sure everyone's on the same same page, talk about priorities, um, and kind of go from there. But given we have a pretty small team uh, and a very diverse farm, and so it's a lot of pivoting, a lot of changing tasks um, as conditions change. And thank God for my crew because they're very flexible and adaptive, and uh -huh. um, it, it wouldn't work if people were more rigid. Yeah. What would you say is the hardest thing you've ever done as a farmer? Managing people, um, which is funny because you know, people don't think of that as a farming task, but it's such a critical part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm no expert by any means whatsoever, but uh, to effectively manage different people is, is, a, is an art form because uh, everyone needs something different. Everyone communicates differently. Uh, everyone takes feedback or instruction in a different way. Um, I'm cursed with being unable to modulate my tone correctly. And so I, I know that if I say something one way to one of the crew members, it'll be taken one way and say it to a different member, it'll be a completely different message that's being sent. Mm. So I think understanding how to effectively motivate, manage, and work with people uh, is probably the most challenging part of, part, part of it. Well, especially with your scale of farm is that you have a scale of farm, which absolutely necessitates people every single day on that. Oh, for sure. And so having the right team members, and we'll get into that a little bit later, is just really diving into the team culture you've created. But um, I mean, I think one of the cool things is that you're just a genuinely nice guy. So I remember, yes, I remember like my <laughs> Thanks, wife, <laughs> my wife said to me, cause she met you, I think at that, uh, I think it was an MOA conference. She's like, yeah, Colin's just such a nice guy. And I was like, mm -hmm. yes, he is. <laughs> so, yeah. um, well, well, uh, Hopefully most of the time, I'm sure uh, you talk to, talk to my crew members, they will say, yeah, maybe not all the time, but uh, no, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, I don't know, the, 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 the way it was described to me by a grower up here uh, that I actually really thought was kind of great is to be an effective farm manager, you kind of have to treat it like being a wrestling coach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know if you wrestled or anything, but the, or any kind of coach is you have to be able to call people on their BS, right? Mm -hmm. If they're not doing something right, you got to have that sort of like tough love, yeah. but you also have to be approachable and you have to be uh, empathetic and compassionate to understand what it is that that person needs. Yeah. And so uh, being able to balance those, especially if you have a crew that like you and I are both pretty young guys. So having a crew that's more or less the same age or in the same sort of like, you know, category of person, however you want to describe yes. that. Yep. It can be a bit challenging to strike the right uh, tone or have the right dynamic. But uh, if you do, and if you have a crew that is receptive and respectful and all that, which I do, uh, it, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you have the right people. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Everyone pulling on the same team, pulling for the same goals. And it's amazing how much you can get done. Oh, for sure.
So talk to us a little bit about the mentors you had over the years. I know you talked about um, starting out, you know, Mike yeah. at, at the beginning, but uh, who else along the way really gave you and shaped your, your outlook? Yeah. Oh man. I I've had so many people. Um, so Mike and Katie at River Root Farm, they're like the, the first people that introduced me to agriculture and, and did it in such a, an amazing way. They were so generous with their time and uh, their knowledge. They really got me started off on the right foot. And so that, you know, I, I, I will be endlessly grateful to them for, for everything they taught me. And they, you know, Mike connected me with Greg Garbos at Four Season Tools and he, he's got a completely different, like, I mean, you know him, his mind oh. works in a completely different yeah. way. Yeah. And so I was able to look at it through the lens of an engineer and say, mm-hmm. okay, let's think about efficiencies. Let's think about systems, which Mike certainly does is what Mike and Katie both do, but Greg takes it to a whole nother level. Oh, it's and, an unreal level. I mean, that guy yeah. is a beast at thinking about the problem from 9,000 different ways and then figuring yeah. out the best way to fix it. Yeah. And so that was hugely impactful. Um, you know, working with him for a handful of years, uh, but at MSU, I had some really great people that I leaned on. John Bierenbaum, uh, is a, just a brilliant guy who he's a professor of horticulture has worked in the sort of floriculture side of the nursery business. That's where he kind of did his, uh, his research and most of his work initially, but has transitioned more to uh, vegetable production in the second kind of half of his career. And then mm-hmm. also is just a whiz when it comes to composting um, and transplant production and all that. Um, Adam Montre is another great guy at MSU. And uh, the greatest thing, and I, you can probably relate to this, but these people that were originally your mentors uh, becoming your peers is such a fun thing. Yeah. Because now Adam, Mike, and I have a text chain and we will bounce ideas off one another and we'll, you know, uh, send pictures of things that are going well or not going well, share ideas. And it's just such a fun thing to have these people that I respect hugely and taught mm-hmm. me so much now, like asking me questions and bouncing ideas off of one another. And it's, it's really quite fun. Yeah. Um, and then one other guy I got to mention, um, and I don't think you'll ever hear this, but he's just a hero of mine. There's a, a fella who uh, works up at, at the farm in Michigan still. And he's, his name's Joe, Joe Charlebois. He is, if you think of someone uh, that is a jack of all trades, mm-hmm. um, he fits that, that, you know, that mold. Uh, he's been wrenching on Jeeps and, you know, welding metal together and, uh, you know, running a combine since he was in high school or before. And so if there's a problem, he knows how to fix it. And he taught me just so much about the sort of the mechanical, the fabrication, the, um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the other side of farming that has nothing to do with horticulture Yeah, and is, you know, 50% of what you do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. uh, having people like that in my, in my Rolodex, uh, has been just hugely helpful. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And With I know that- you're, you're a huge, you're huge on mentors and I, I, I'm completely in that boat. Find the right people and glom onto them and, and man, does life get a lot easier when you do. Yeah. Do whatever it takes to get into the right circles because, yep. um, 
yeah, there's just that level of, and especially now, like right now we're designing a brand new farm and being able to kick a design to one of your mentors and say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And they come back with, well, did you think about this? And you're, I'm still like, and again, I design farms all of the time, but like, Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah. So um, yeah, absolutely. It's just, and because the thing is, is there's so much in farming, you'll never learn from a course. You'll never learn from a book. It's just, it, it comes from that, you know, the people that are daily with their feet in the soil on just, you know, getting that feedback um, loop constantly coming. So. Well, and the, the other side of that too, is, you know, you look at, <clears throat> you look at a, a, st- a typical career of a farmer and you get, you know, 50, 60 tries to do, Mm-hmm. a year a season right yeah uh and that's a pretty small perspective you're seeing things through your own lens which is you know obviously defined by who you are how you think etc you're typically seeing it on if you're starting off you might see it on a handful of farms but if you start your own farm you're seeing it through that one piece of land or those yes. you know those acres and uh those enterprises that you choose and so you're missing out on a huge wealth of knowledge that is part of that sort of collective understanding of uh, farming, agriculture, systems, whatever that exists among all agriculturalists. Yeah. And so it, 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 it just makes sense, honestly, to, to tap into that when you can. Yeah, especially too, when you also see the incredible geographical difference of not just, um, in like the US, but around the world, just I mean, things that people do in other countries were unheard of, even though sometimes we even have similar climates, like you look at the Netherlands, um, just the level of automation level of precision they have in their agriculture, and then you come to the US and you see how sloppy we are. (laughs) in some of this stuff, but you're absolutely right is that you know being able to tap into that network and is just incredible and i think that's the beauty of the digital age that we are in is just being able to automate and i mean like this podcast interview you Mm -hmm. i sent you an email you started down an automated system which ended us at this time with this automated link being sent to both of us being able to connect and then our editor who's actually carries in the netherlands he will take this file and he'll get it ready and it'll then go to our production team which will get it all ready to go out and uh probably air in probably four to six weeks so it's just incredible just that technology has made learning so much different and then the other thing like i was talking to a consult client who we'll be working with um and they're multiple states away and they was like okay do we need to get you out here and i was like actually I said, I rarely step onto farms. They said, unless we're doing a full farm design and I need to actually feel the area, most everything's done through Zoom and we can just, uh, you know, Zoom right out to the field and look at the crops, right? That's happening right then. And it saves so much money and time. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, going back to this idea of, say, a podcast, it's like, you know, say I call you up, Michael, and we're having a conversation. It's great that you and I are going to probably... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to learn something from you. You know, maybe, maybe I can contribute something, but that stays there. Yeah. But the fact that now we're doing this conversation, you know, unless I make a fool of myself, it'll probably be broadcast. <laughs> and, and that will be, however, many other people who are basically flies on the wall listening <laughs> to a conversation between two, two growers. And so there are so many resources now where you can just like, you can take a deep dive into, into some of these topics from, your couch in the winter, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
With that, I'd like to stop here and take a quick break. In a minute, we'll be back with Colin Thompson from, uh, what's the name of your farm again? It's uh, Willowsford Farm. Willowsford, all right. If you've been enjoying this episode so far, you're going to want to head over to growingfarmers.com backslash free resources and download our free resource bundle to help you shave hours off your week and become a thriving farmer. It includes resources such as our 10 winter growing secrets we wish we knew when we started, which is a ebook which talks about the tips and techniques to get better growth in your winter production. We teach things like the simple but counterintuitive principle that trips up most beginning growers, the shape and size of tunnels that are best for winter production, how to prepare beds so they are weed-free and get beautiful lush stands of crops, what to do about pests like aphids, voles, and slugs, how to fast-track your research to fine-tune your production for your microclimate, and how to pack in more crops for higher yields and profits. So head over to growingfarmers.com backslash free resources and download your free resource bundle today. All right, so we are back with Colin Thompson. Um, Colin, talk to us about your team. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, and we talked about how great of a team you've got. How do you divide roles on the farm? Uh, yeah, I, I actually tried something slightly different this year. So we're we're kind of in the no man zone in terms of scale um, for really having, I guess, a true economies of scale when it comes to both things like mechanizing systems out in the field or staffing. Mm. Um, <clears throat> because it's still a requirement that everyone on staff kind of dabble in all areas of the farm. Uh-huh. Like I don't have, <clears throat> I don't have a designated uh, harvest crew or anything like that. Um, but what I did do is I took people who basically had an interest and also had, uh, you know, the, the, I trusted them and I trust everyone on my team. So this was pretty easy, but had an interest in a specific area on the farm and then just trained them in on it and let them, let them run. Um, So for example, I have uh, a guy who is very, very methodical. His name's James. He's very methodical. He's calculating. He pays attention to detail. um, And so I put him on irrigation because being able to observe closely how a system's working, making sure that we have proper application of water and fertility uh, that really resonated with him. Um, and, and it, it's been great. Uh, another area of emphasis is the pack shed. Uh, you know, that's usually seems to be one that they, that most people kind of pull out from the regular crew is to have someone who's the pack shed lead just mm-hmm. because it is such a critical, a critical part of the farm. So Rory, uh, she's got, you know, an eye for quality. Um, she takes feedback really, really well. Um, you know, she's good at directing other people in certain tasks and so that felt like a good, a good fit for her. So we've got, you know, irrigation, we've got uh, pack shed, we've got greenhouse. Um, I have my assistant manager, John, who I've mentioned a couple of times, and he, he's kind of the crew lead when it comes to harvest. He'll, he's a great equipment operator, so he'll do a variety of different tasks. Uh, we've got Alexandra, who is kind of a split role between our retail side of things, that is the farm stand we have and CSA kind of back end, okay. as well as farm. And so she's a jack of all trades and one of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. Um, and then we've got uh, the whole other side of the farm, which is this sort of, we call it retail, but um, since COVID hit, it's more of sales and marketing. Yeah. Um, because we don't have a, an open, like our farm stand is closed for the season. 
and there's a you know full-time gal Ashley who does uh, most of that back-end work and then I just you know I run around like a maniac trying to put out fires and <laughs> figure out yep. where I'm useful and then you know every year we've got a handful of people who come on just kind of general laborers maybe it's their first time on a farm uh, or you know they don't feel comfortable specializing they want to get it sort of a general overview of what farming takes um, and those people kind of plug into whatever task is at hand. Um, and so there's a, there's a mixture of people who have been here maybe a little bit longer and are specializing. And then the people who are uh, generalist, seasonal, maybe new to farming. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very cool. So what would you say about when you're hiring? Um, how are you bringing on such great team members? It's tough, you know, uh, one, because I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, we are again in Northern Virginia mm. where there's plenty of work, right? Yeah. And say Amazon headquarters in Crystal Falls, just down the road and you can get, you know, entry wages of, I think like 18 bucks an hour. And so, uh, or driving for Amazon or Uber or any of that, even that is, uh, you know, hard to compete with. So finding people is, is pretty tough. People who want to be out in the heat and humidity of Virginia in the, you know, in the summer. Um, so what we've done is we've, there, there are a few people who have been here for several years. And for those, uh, those guys, I'm endlessly grateful. Uh, James is one who's doing the irrigation Lex who does most of our livestock stuff. He's been here for ages and we had a fellow who, uh, has left now, but he, um, Nate was his name. He did the greenhouse stuff and he was, uh, here for five or seven years, I think. So holding on to people is really great. Uh, when bringing on new people, uh, work interview, uh, is usually really important, especially for full season employment, seeing how they work, seeing how they move their body. Um, seeing how they communicate, if they ask questions while, uh, you know, they're working with you in the field. Uh, those are all like subtle hints as to how they will, how they will function in, you know, as part of the team or in this line of work. Um, the other thing I always look at is like, have they worked outside? Um, because Virginia gets really hot and really humid. And yeah. so if they've never worked a day outside, uh, it's probably going to be a struggle. I'm not saying that they can't do it, but people who have done time on horse farms or landscaping crews or, um, you know, construction crews, anything like that, typically, uh, the, the elements are not going to be as big of an issue. You can train someone how to pick zucchini, but it's uh -huh. really tough to train someone to tolerate heat and humidity. Uh -huh. So, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a gamble. I've gotten real lucky. Um, once you get the good people on your team, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, doing everything you can to try to keep them, uh, which is the hardest part, obviously, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk a little bit about your sales and marketing too. So you've obviously have somewhat of a captive sales audience, but you also are kind of branching out a little bit as well. Yeah, so our, our bread and butter CSA, uh, we have, we're packing anywhere between four and 500 boxes a week. Um, and we do a, we're a Harvey farm. Uh, so we're doing fully customizable boxes through the Harvey uh, platform, which for our type of customer is basically essential 
uh, yeah. to, to kind of keep that retention number high. Um, just because, you know, it is a pretty uh, wealthy community, has high expectations for what product looks like, convenience and uh, choice is pretty important. So uh, that's a big part of what we're doing. And that was new. We, we did our first uh, customizable boxes. I guess it would have been uh, 2018. Okay. Um, and then we also piloted winter during our winter CSA home delivery. And that is obviously blown up. I feel like yes. we got really lucky that we were just ahead of the curve in working out the kinks of home delivery. Um, so like I said, most of it is CSA. Um, and Harvey does a great job of supporting the marketing efforts. Uh, we have a pretty uh, great foundation in terms of our online presence and the website that we use alongside the other kind of parts of the conservancy. Certainly being part of an agrihood or a community helps because when they sell homes, they're saying, Hey, did you know we have a farm too? Uh -huh. And so that drives people to us. Um, so about two thirds of our CSA members are Willowsford homeowners residents. Okay. And then a third of it is from the, like the neighborhood neighboring communities. Um, and then we do our onsite farm stand in non pandemic years. Um, and that's a, it's a, cute little thing. It doesn't bring in a huge amount of revenue, but it's where we can sell partner products. Mm -hmm. We get a little more FaceTime with customers. Uh, we bring in pizza trucks, food trucks, that sort of oh, thing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Make a, make a thing of it basically. Um, make it an exper experience rather. Um, and then we started picking up more wholesale customers too. Um, food co-ops, groceries, uh, we started working with a juice uh, processing outfit here locally mm -hmm. um, just for surpluses and some of the like easy wholesale crops. Um, I think I saw a picture of spinach planted for them. We did spinach for them. Um, we've done kale for them, watermelons, carrots, cucumbers, the things that go. I, I wish they could figure out how to juice zucchini. Um, <laughs> doesn't everyone <laughs> haven't haven't gotten there yet um but yeah it's been it's been fun the nice part is when you're working with some of these smaller companies because they're they're growing rapidly uh um, yeah you know they're probably one of those businesses where a global health crisis actually helps because people equate juice with health yes and so they're seeing just like a lot of small farms are a pretty big increase in demand and we're their main supplier at this point um and so we can kind of grow with them and also, given that they're committed to local ag, um, we can bring product to them. Uh, we, we basically negotiated over the winter. We say, hey, we can bring you these products at a slightly lower price point if you wash them. Yeah. Or if you, know, you process them further. And they were all about it because they're already washing stuff in, a, in basically a barrel washer um, that comes in net from national suppliers. So those sorts of relationships are, are quite valuable. Uh, I just signed up. We're going to be a vendor for a local food hub. Uh, like a small, uh, like a regional distributor. So it's, it's kind of a mix, but the, the heart of it is the CSA without a doubt. <laughs> and that customized aspect. And if you guys yeah. are interested in Harvey, um, just use growing farmers. If you are interested when you talk to them to sign up and we, they, we, there's some sort of discount code they give you guys. So it's, it's definitely worth your time to mention us because you get a, like a couple hundred dollars off your setup fee. So that's great. And, yeah. And Simon's been a great friend over the years. I mean, they have done a great job with trying to innovate, trying to lead the pack with customizable. And um, 
Yeah, sure. I know a lot of farmers that are super happy with working with them and it's made a huge difference in their farm. So, yeah, well, Mike, I want to tell you, we, it's an expensive thing, um, yeah. but it's, it's worth every penny. And uh, one of the things that, that really uh, kind of solidified that for me was looking at our change in retention rate. Uh -huh. So we have, I hope no Willowsford residents listen to this, but we have a little bit of a fickle customer base. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, they do it you know, they sign up for a CSA because it's in their neighborhood mm -hmm. and because it's cute and it's interesting and, you know, they, they can spend a few hundred bucks in a season with us. It's not, it's not going to yeah. break their bank. Um, but we'd see a lot of drop off, you know, the retention rates for Willisford farm prior to customization was pretty abysmal, like 40%, Oh wow. 40, 40 to 45%. And that, that was tough. Yeah. But um, once we started customizing, once we started to do home delivery, um, we saw a jump up to within among Willisford residents, we saw a jump up to 78% retention. Wow. Um, and over, yeah. And, uh, overall it was up to like 69 or something for mm -hmm. our entire customer base. So, I mean, there's obviously still work to do. There's always work to do, uh, when it comes to retention, but that just shows me that that tool Harvey yeah. Uh, has been hugely helpful for our operation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very cool. So let's uh, shift a little bit here and talk about new farmers because you came that route, you know, you weren't a generational farmer um, mm -hmm. and you've now been on multiple farms and seen a lot of farmers come and go. What do you think the biggest mistake that beginning farmers make? I feel like everyone says this, but I think it's probably important for beginning farmers to hear it. And I'm a beginning farmer, you know, I've only been doing this about 10 years now. So I still consider myself a pretty, pretty novice um, farmer, but it's just taken on too much. Um, mm -hmm. You know, whether that's too many different individual enterprises, let's do sheep, let's do chicken, let's do vegetables, let's do an orchard and all that's great. And I, you know, I share the same excitement of jumping on, you know, or jumping in feet first and really, you know, trying to conquer the world. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's so many people that do that and then just burn out in the first two seasons. And uh, it's really tough. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want people to like squash their dreams or anything, but to take a calculated approach and to realize that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and mm -hmm. that your farm is going to be built over the long term, not the short term. And you need to be sort of strategic and how you use your resources, your energy and everything. Yeah. Everything else. Well, I think Colin, that's good to hear because, you know, that is something we like to preach and it's something that I right now I'm struggling with. I mean, I'll be incredibly honest right now. I'm struggling hugely with that because yeah. I'm on a blank slate, brand new eight acre farm. And I can see in my mind what it's going to look like in a decade. And I want that now. But yeah. there's no way that I can do that. I mean, financially, obviously, because building out a fully functioning farm is very expensive. Um, building the team, even if tomorrow I went and hired 10 people, <laughs> you yeah. build a good team slowly. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I'm just having to work very hard to slow myself down to just try to do one enterprise at a time and, uh, and know that it's the long game and uh, it will happen. But, I think the same, you yeah. know, the same advice holds true. Like you say, you're a seasoned farmer. It's the same, same thing is true. Even if you're say starting a new operation or even what we saw this year is we had a pretty big increase in demand due to COVID. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
-hmm. And so, you know, it's easy to say, yes, let's do it. Let's uh, add another 200 boxes or, you know, whatever else. Let's uh, bring on uh, the 30 more pigs because we got that market, but it's not a linear, you know, scaling is not linear. Yeah. And you're going to feel a lot of those pains of, of sort of expansion if you're not ready for it. So and in like a factory, you can just add additional lines. I mean, you mm. just tell your suppliers, I need more parts for more widgets. But in a farm, it's everything from the team to the equipment to the, uh, the harvest and packing and the production delivery. Yeah. There's so many things to think of. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, you know, you might be able to do 20 acres with a, a 40 horse tractor, but it's going to hurt. Oh, it's good. Um, yes. <laughs> You'll be tilling all night. Yeah. So it's, it is, you get to a point where you really have to, it, I don't know. It's, it's so easy cause it's, it's fun to think about. It's easy to get excited. It's easy to, like you say, sit back and imagine where it's going. Mm-hmm. You know, farmers generally seem to be kind of dreamers. Um, we like thinking big. We like seeing all these things moving together and the sort of the, the ecosystem that we're creating, but man, it takes a long time and a mm-hmm. lot of work and should try to cram that all into one or two years is a, it's, it's, I would say it's a big mistake. Mm. So is there anything that you say farmers should avoid their first year? Other than, <laughs> hey, no, that's good too. I think, yeah, um, I, I'm a proponent of the CSA model. I think it's great. Obviously we're doing, doing that uh, here, but I have seen a lot of people, actually, there's a, a farm nearby that uh, kind of pulled together a CSA because they saw the demand um, mm. this, this year. And uh, they didn't have, I think it was their first season on this piece of ground. Yeah, they had gosh. farmed for other people. They had, you know, they yeah. had gotten a good education and all that, done their homework. But to, to take on the responsibility of feeding, say, 400 people in a, in a over the, we do a 25 week season. So to do, to do that in year one with no context for how your ground's going to respond, what your fertility, water, equipment, all mm-hmm. that is, how that's all going to work together. Uh, it's just a, you know, it's a monumental task. And to, to try to, to try to do all that at once is it's, it's I mean, it goes back to what we were just talking about. Yeah. I would say find if, if I were to develop the, the model that I would like to step into if I were starting another farm, I would find wholesale partners uh, that were flexible Uh to to partner with or find a farm, a big farm that's got a CSA and say, Hey, what can I grow for you? Absolutely. Um, That to me seems like a much more manageable entry and a CSA, even a farmer's market, they can be so draining. Um, So you just got to be careful with that in your first year. I think you need Uh a little bit of, a little bit of experience on a piece of land before you can do that with confidence. Yeah. I mean, the one thing you said about a uh, you know, new ground. So like right here, we're actually planting probably, we'll probably be planting about an acre of products for this fall. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it will actually probably truthfully, either go to the food pantry or be tilled under. And the main reason of that is because I'm trying to understand this ground. 
is I'm trying to understand first the, uh, the, the climate. I mean, yes, we farmed for the last couple of years very close to here, but we're on new type of soil um, with new water and uh, it was very conventionally farmed for decades. So we're dealing with all of those. One of them is uh, a new weed that I just found out about. Um, <laughs> I, oh, what is that? It's, I always love hearing about new yeah, weeds. Well, you, you, may be, you may be very familiar with it. It's, uh, it's milkweed vine or vine milkweed. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I was always used to um, bindweed, which is, and I thought it was just like a giant bindweed. And so then I actually sent some pictures around and had uh, somebody say, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is. And then they were telling me all the details of it. And I was like, oh, fun, fun, fun. <laughs> so Yeah, I had a new weed experience up here or down here rather. Um, spiny amaranth. You have oh, any of that at your place? No, That's we do a, not, but I've, I've definitely dealt with it. Oh, it's a miserable one. I think it got brought in by some uh, some horse manure compost many mm -hmm. years ago, and it is it is here to stay. It's like a normal pigweed or amaranth, but it uh, it's got vicious spines on it that will get infected. You have to wear thick leather gloves if you're working around it, and it grows so fast. Oh. So uh, I hope I hope Michael that you never see that on your new farm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, I mean, but oh, go ahead. We've, I mean, it's really, and actually I want to do a video on this of like a field walk and just walk through the different weeds and I just have been meaning mm. to, but um, I mean, we have, um, we have uh, poison ivy in the mm. middle of the field. Oh yeah. We've oh. Got, yeah. I was blown <laughs> away. Um, Virginia creeper, um, yeah. which actually is very easy to eradicate. Uh, Johnson grass, which is, you know, it's, it's a, if I could actually harness that for good, that would Seriously. be incredible because I mean, yeah. that thing literally doubles in size overnight, but, yeah. um, but yeah, the, the worst right now is we're dealing with a little bit of pigweed, um, mm. which is pretty easy to get under control just as long as you don't let it go to seed again. Um, the bindweed, then that, uh, yeah, that, that vine milkweed, which is, is, yeah. is pretty bad across the field. So, well, you, you touched on something that I find, we always said this when I was with four season tools, if we did any farm consultation or help, you know, helped on the kind of the early stages, the recommendation we always gave was do not farm in your first year. Um, mm -hmm. just observe, build out, uh, you know, whatever infrastructure makes sense. Some of the stuff that's easy to do if you can afford it, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but just like, you know, cover crop, get the soil ready, do your testing, your analyses, maybe do what you're doing where you're growing a handful of crops just to see what, what surprises are coming your way. Yes. Um, and just take the, take the time to do that. And not everyone has that luxury, I know. But if I were to start over and start a farm again, that's exactly what I would do. Um, but I, okay, so something you said there, not everyone has the luxury. And, you know, mm -hmm. lately in our business, we've been really diving into the financial side of business because we realize that is something that trips up so many farmers. Yeah. And people say like, people come to me like, Michael, you're, you came onto a new farm. You have a vastly more expensive mortgage now. And so don't you need to like pay for that? And I was like, mm -hmm. actually... When we, obviously, yes, it was a stretch for us, but we actually, when we were financing, we were very, very intentional about putting away 12 months of the extra mortgage payment in an account. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to do some certain things on the house and yes, there's certain things that will have to be delayed. I um, mean, actually, this is, uh, we actually started a brand new podcast. So uh, all about this, we, it's called Building the Farm on Central. 
And if you search iTunes, it's all over the place. And actually, we haven't even announced it to the world yet. But this is kind of like I'm spilling the beans. Um, yeah. But um, because we we were we, we wanted to be careful that we didn't want to go into a place where we had a lot of stress because starting any farm is incredibly stressful. And if yeah. you on, on top of that have this incredible financial stress, then you're going you're you're destined to burn out, destined to fail. Um, so we were very careful to build ourselves in a buffer. Um, and I think farmers need to be careful about that. Yes, you can, like, you can have these great dreams. And I, I know some people out there which think they're God's gift to the world and that they are a martyr for this cause and that they have <laughs> to farm to feed the world. Um, yeah, that's great but not at the expense of your family, not at the expense of your health, not at the expense of, you know, I know a farmer in Texas, um, you know, built himself an incredible name very quickly. He lost his family, um, you know, to, to divorce. His kids really don't want to hang around with him. Um, and it's a, it's a name that everyone recognizes. It's just, it blew me away because I watched him. I watched that rapid scale, that rapid thing. And just, I was down there a couple of years ago and saw him and almost didn't recognize him. He'd aged mm. so much. Um, so, you know, this is something that I think we need to talk about more and I'm glad you kind of like, we need to be very careful to, um, give ourselves that margin to not put ourselves in a position where we have to literally that first year on the farm, make or break it. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's so much more important to go slow, to make that multi-year transition. Um, so we were working with a farm this year. We have, you know, we have some of our higher level consult clients, which we work with very closely. And, um, you know, he wanted to take this year as his first full-time year on the farm. And I had to actually say, I'm sorry, but let's step back one because we're doing really well. And he is crushing it this year. They've doubled their sales. Um, mm -hmm. But we said, we're stepping back just a little bit because I want you to be able to have a little bit of flexibility with some off-farm income still to be able to A, fund some new, some more greenhouses and stuff as well as just give you that margin in the winter time. So um, yeah, don't just, I guess, I guess what I said all that to say is don't dive all in right at the beginning. Give yourself that space, intern or apprentice, or go work for someone like Colin, who's who uh, who's got an incredible teaching uh, mind and just has a has done a really good job building out a farm. So I think you know someone coming to work for you can learn so much before they have to go make the mistakes themselves. So yeah, well, and I appreciate you saying that, and that's kind of the uh, the route I've taken personally. Is you know I I don't own a farm, right? I've always worked for for mm -hmm. wages, and you know there's part of me that says, oh, I should probably get there eventually. Right. But I say, I, I like to work in different systems. I like to build things. I like to tweak things. And it's, it's, it's nice to be able to do that on someone else's dime for a while uh -huh. before you do it on your own. Yeah. And, and I look at it too. And I say, you know, you pulled out the word, the luxury of doing it. And honestly, as I was listening to you talk, I, I think I might go back on that and say, it's not a luxury to do it. It's, it's, it actually pays off uh, greater dividends yeah. in the long run because what you then have the ability to do is better understand your farm, right? Uh -huh. You know what it needs. Uh -huh. You then understand what you need to invest in, which means that your costs are going to be more targeted or your, yeah. um, your investments. Um, and also if say you went out, Michael, and you tilled up your, your field and planted a bunch of carrots. Um, uh, which I did into, the other day. Yeah. <laughs> If you do that with no prep, uh, you're going to either be a turning in a field of carrots yep. or B uh, killing yourself, trying to weed them yes. uh, and get them to grow and hate carrots by the end of it. 
But if you are able to set back, sit back and say, hey, I'm going to cover crop this field. I'm going to watch how the cover crop grows. I'm going to build the soil uh, over the course of a year or two. And then that first batch of carrots that you put onto that now prime ag ground is going to, one, pay you a heck of a lot more because the labor inputs are going to be a lot less and the general input should be a lot less. But two, you're not going to burn out. You're going to feel a heck of a lot better at the end of that season and want to hit it hard the next, the yes. next season. Yeah. So it's, it, it's all connected. And, you know, the more time we can take and more intentionality we can put into these sorts of things, I think the better off we're going to be. And it's so easy to burn out. So mm -hmm. easy. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it, everyone feels it at some point or another, and it's good to watch out for your, your farming community, your farming pals, but it's just watch out for yourself and make sure you're taking the appropriate steps to build in that buffer, build in that safety net, take time away from the farm uh, to, to kind of recharge and, and be a human. Uh -huh, uh -huh, absolutely. And then we got to wrap it up here. Cause I know this is a long interview, but I know sure, people sorry, are going to hang, no, hang on every word. And I actually, when I told my wife, cause I actually had this evening's quite stacked with all the things I tried to fit in. So I was like, Savannah, mm -hmm. I'm really not going to have dinner time just because of like the different things I stacked into it, which is totally my fault. Sure. Um, but I did say, I want to make sure I give myself space for this interview because I know it's going to be, it was going to be a fun one. Um, so yeah, that said, I, I, I can, you, you know me, I can talk. <laughs> if you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool? Oh, that, uh, that changes day to day, honestly. Um, if I'm being practical, I'm going to say my, my, my smartphone, honestly. Mm. Um, it's a pretty, a pretty amazing tool, uh, both for like execution of plans, communication, um, you know, we use Google Drive, Google Docs, we use 10, we use Trello. Um, it's, it's not a, you know, if I wanted to pick a shiny tool, I'd say our cult crass, uh, mm -hmm. cultivator, but honestly, the thing that saves me the most is having a, in, an encyclopedia, a phone, a camera, uh, calculator. you know, walkie talk calculator, all that in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Very millennial of me to say that, isn't it? Sheesh, man. <laughs> All right. So do you believe now is the best time to be starting a farm? Oh, uh, for some people. Uh, mm. I think that's a more personal question, honestly. I think from a market standpoint, there is currently quite a, quite a hunger, um, you know, that uh, metaphorically and honestly, uh, not metaphorically, um, for solid, stable, predictable, mm -hmm. high quality food. And so the market exists, but it's also who knows exactly what all this COVID stuff is going mm -hmm. to turn into. Uh, I, I see it. It could go two ways. It could stick or it could be something that as soon as people feel a little more stable, um, they'll, they'll drop the local side of things. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I honestly, I think that's a question you have to ask yourself as you're considering it saying, am I personally ready to, mm -hmm. cause you, if you got enough hustle and you got enough wit, um, or wisdom, um, you can find a way to make it work, but, uh, it, if you're not ready for it, then it's the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, we got a website, uh, willisfordfarm.com. It's pretty easy to track us down. Got all the social media stuff to Instagram, YouTube. Uh, actually, yeah, we did start a YouTube channel. Um, this is, you know, COVID related. We ended up uh, trying to find ways to better connect with our customers and so I'm doing, you know, short little videos every, every week, 
um, about what's going on at the farm. Uh, it's pretty small, but we're working on it. But Instagram, Facebook, all the all the normal spots. Mm-hmm. And Willowsford is just Willows, and then the word Ford Farm. Yeah, this is maybe this is my advice to the beginning farmer: pick an easy to pronounce and easy to spell farm name. <laughs> Because the amount of times you have to spell that out to someone who say you're, you know, calling in an order from the Hort supplier and you have to spell it out yes, or whatever else it's, it, it's stupid, but it's actually a really great, great piece of advice. So actually we were incredibly intentional about that when we started our new farm name. Yeah. Um, so our, it's ours is the farm on central. We're located Perfect. right on the, the central, it's basically central Avenue we're located on 12,000 cars a day. Um, and I was able to pick up the domain central.farm. No way. Yes. I Dang. am like, I know. I am like, pl- please as punch about that one. Um, so Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like band names too. You got to get more obscure to stick out. But with farms, I don't know. I don't know if it's <laughs> worth it. Just put your, you know, your last name and farm. Call yes. it good. But then if you put your last name and farm, you, there's no exit strategy. That's true. You're locked in. Yeah. Or me, Thompson. I, I, you know, there's so many Thompsons out there. I'm sure there's 50 Thompson farms out in the world. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time today. This again was the highlight of my Tuesday to be able to interview Thanks, you. So oh, it's a great um, pleasure chatting with you. Good to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. I think you said kind of earlier, it's just a chat between friends. And that's absolutely what I thought when you reached out originally, like, Hey, I'm doing this cool thing. You should check it out. I was like, dang, how do you find that job? Um, so I was, I was actually kind of jealous. <laughs> but, um, no need to yeah. be. You're doing plenty of cool stuff yourself, Michael. <laughs> but uh, yeah, best of luck. I Hopefully once uh, we kind of like go back to normal, I will come visit you because I definitely want to come uh, see what you're up to. Love um, to have it. Because I do have enough number of friends in your area of the world so I could make cool. a trip of it. So Yeah, well, and likewise, I'd love to see uh, how things progress with your new, your new operation. Sounds like you got some uh, neat irons in the fire. We're trying. So awesome. All right, Colin. Thanks again so much. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Take care, Michael. Bye. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here. So next week on the podcast, we have a really interesting interview. We have Gene Howard, who is a trained community herbalist, drum circle facilitator, and musician who has a farm, an herb farm, and, uh, and they have chickens. They do a labyrinth and a peace path and do a lot of educational aspects. So not only do they grow herbs and honey and have an on-farm health food store, but they also do a lot of education. So join me next week, hear from Gene on how they built their farm in rural Virginia. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.